Hello, and welcome to the A to Z of the future. My name is Alexander Thomas, and over the upcoming weeks, months, maybe even years, I'm going to be presenting a series of 26 concepts which I think together may give us some understanding of what the future of life on this planet, and maybe even beyond, might have in store. I'll be talking to experts on each topic, scientists, academics, writers, artists, poets, anyone who I can find that may offer some valuable insight into these concepts and how they may influence what lies ahead, the great unknown, the future. I don't believe in a linear trajectory. The future will always be surprising, uneven, messy, complex. And so despite the format of an A to Z, our journey will not be in simple alphabetical order. That said, we're going to begin with the letter A and the Anthropocene. This is the first of three episodes that will unpack what it means, why it's useful as a concept, and how it relates to the future. So here's the elevator pitch. The Anthropocene is a term coined relatively recently that indicates that human activity is now having an impact on planet Earth at a geological scale. Since exactly when this was is part of the debate that we're going to dive into, but in essence, examining the Anthropocene is examining what human existence has done to our planet at whirlwind speed, and how the irreversible nature of a lot of the changes humanity has presided over is going to affect our future. Now let's begin with Dr Erica Cudworth, a social scientist and co-author of the Emancipatory Project of Posthumanism. Erica's going to talk us through what the term Anthropocene means and where it comes from. In the year 2000, Paul Crutzen and Eugene Sturmer proposed to use this term, Anthropocene, to describe our current geological epoch. So Sturmer is an ecologist and he was using the term in the 1980s, but not consistently and rather differently. And it was only when he teamed up with Paul Crutzen, who's an award-winning atmospheric chemist, that the term became popularised and was given its current meaning. So the word itself comes from the Greek anthropos, human, and kinos, meaning new, or it's probably more accurate to say meaning recent. So in Greek, kinos emerges from and looks back to the old. So it's not kind of new in terms of just looking towards the future. This is what gives Anthropocene, it's commonly used meaning as an age or an epoch. So if you were to ask me to define Anthropocene very quickly, I would say the age of the human. And now let me introduce you to Andrew Revkin, one of America's most honoured environmental journalists and science communicators who was part of the Anthropocene Working Group. More on that later. He's here to give us a little more context on the topic. Well, for one thing, it's so new that no one has settled on how to pronounce it. My uh, British friends say Anthropocene. In the States, it's Anthropocene. That indicates to me this is a novel concept. The core idea is that we've entered a period of Earth history that's our doing. All of human history unfolded with nature doing its thing. We did our thing. We might pollute a lake or extinguish uh, the moa or the like. But mostly the Earth system was dominant and we were subservient. And the big idea of the Anthropocene is that we are now much more in the driver's seat. That the anthropo part is creating a scene, meaning an epoch. And there will be a durable signature of that going forward. So Crutzen uses it to suggest that the influence of human behaviour on the Earth's atmosphere in recent centuries, is so very significant that it constitutes a new geological epoch. So we've written ourselves onto the geological record because of such an unprecedented scale of activity and influence. Now, when Crutzen and Stormer are talking about human activity, they're actually talking about all the kinds of things that we currently think of in terms of environmental problems, threats, potential disasters. So they're talking about the growth of human population and the growth of domestic animal populations. They're talking about the growth of urbanism, so it's become a dominant way of life. They're talking about the consumption of fossil fuels, emission of greenhouse gases, the speed of species extinction, this kind of thing. And I think it's important to acknowledge that Paul Crutzen proposed the term because he very much cared 
about acidification and warming of the oceans in particular, and a whole range of anthropogenic processes transforming life on Earth. So he wanted to capture with this word or with this concept the state of our current and our unfolding crisis. So it's a dramatic term, if you like, for a dramatic state of affairs, and he really wanted people to sit up and pay attention. So the notion of the Anthropocene, it's a strong claim at a huge scale, but this is perhaps why it's kind of captured the imagination of people working across academic disciplines and why it's featured so much in the media. Now let's hear from Gaia Vince, former news editor of Nature magazine and author of Adventures in the Anthropocene and Transcendence. She'll discuss the apparent domination of humanity over the planet. Obviously, humans have transformed our environment. That's a characteristic of our species. These environmental changes, even though they have been really profound, you know, we've caused the extinction of a lot of um, animals, particularly megafauna, and got rid of forests and changed landscapes. They've generally been local or regional, and um, our species population has been small enough that there's been recovery periods in between sort of human destructive episodes. But we have changed um, our landscape over through deep history. Now, however, the Anthropocene really is a mark of um, how we've come to dominate um, environmental Earth systems um, with our human systems. So we're now interacting um, in a global way with, with Earth systems. And that's, I think, different. When, when we talk about humans dominating the planet, scientists don't mean that humans are dominant in a in a theological or religious sense that we are like better than other animals or um, or even more powerful in a physical sense. But it it means that our activities now, and when I talk about humans, I don't mean um, individual humans, but um, the human system now has this um, this completely outsized effect on all life on Earth. So there is no part of the planet that is untouched by us anymore. And that's really quite extraordinary if you think of us as um, just another tropical ape. In 2014, the word uh, passed what's really a significant milestone. It got into the Oxford English Dictionary. But it was one of about 171 words in the year 2014. And other words included flexitarian and, and selfie. So it's it was part of a big mix of terms coming up, you know, our life is changing so fast in, in so many ways, and it's just one of the um, many uh, emergent questions. And, and I still feel that the technical questions are very important, but to me, the having that open, adventurous debate about what to call this epoch, this period and this juncture in our history, and even, of course, even more so, where do we go from here? That's what makes this a special moment. Okay, so Erica Cudworth, Andrew Revkin and Gaia Vince have told us what it means, but what are the impacts, the real-world effects of this age of the human? What kinds of things are we talking about that we've done? Here is Professor Mark Maslin, who will be joined by Andrew Revkin and Gaia Vince to talk about the kind of impacts we've been having. Mark is an expert in Earth System Science, author of How to Save Our Planet, The Facts, and co-author with Simon Lewis of The Human Planet, How We Created the Anthropocene. So if we look at the facts that actually define the human impact on the planet, we can start off with things such as, we currently move more soil, rock and sediment every year than all the natural processes put together. We have generated enough concrete to cover the whole surface of the earth, including the oceans, in a layer two millimetres thick. We also make 300 million tonnes of plastic every single year. Many of it uh, ends up in the ocean. There's a recent photograph showing a plastic bag in the bottom of the Marianas Trench, which is nearly 10 kilometers deep in the ocean. But there are other facts that we can look at. If we look at, say, um, the nitrogen cycle, we currently fix so much nitrogen out of the atmosphere to make fertilizer that we have doubled the amount of fixation on the planet. 
The last time the nitrogen cycle was this disrupted was something like two and a half billion years ago. And for me, I think the scariest fact is if we look at the weight of mammals on land. Currently, 30% is made up of humans. So there's 7.8 billion of us. 67% of that weight is made up of our livestock and our pets. And just 3% of that weight is the wildlife that David Attenborough goes running around the world to film. Think about it. 97% of the weight of mammals on land are to do with humans or are human. There are other traces in rock that will be enduring. There are spherules of glass, little pieces of glass that we've, that the reflective stuff on roads, they're all over the place. Those are now being laid down in riverbeds. Another one is aluminum, aluminum. It's not something you find in nature. It's a, it's a manufactured alloy. And there's about 500 million tons of that strewn around now. It's very long lasting. It doesn't rust away. So that'll be around. Concrete was invented as long ago as you know, the Romans had versions of concrete. But now we're up to uh, about 50 billion tons of concrete. About half of the concrete that we have manufactured has just been in the last 20 years. There was one statistic recently that in the next 30 years, we're building more new edifices on this planet that have been, have been built in all of human history. So combine all the housing, all the structures that humans built through our evolution, you know, from a small migrant species to a billion humans in 1800, through now that habitation and those structures, we're going to build more in the next 30 years than all of that. Orbital debris. You think about all the satellites we've launched just last week. Elon Musk launched another 120 satellites. And even the ones that have sort of fallen apart, that, that orbital debris is now part of what's called the technosphere. So coming to this planet, you know, 100,000 years from now, even the stuff that's high enough that won't settle into the atmosphere, it's, going to, it's there. It's a signature. You, know, you come to this planet and go, wow, this is interesting. Look at all these exotic metals uh, orbiting the planet. So from, from the technosphere, from, from orbital space to the deepest seabed, we are leaving that, that imprint. Well, something like two-thirds of fresh water is in some way controlled by us. Perhaps as much as three quarters of the ice-free land surface is used to grow our food. I mean, I think that's extraordinary for one species. But it's true. There is no place on Earth. You go to the Arctic. Um, first of all, the atmosphere, you're breathing in, you know, a completely different atmosphere created by us, by our emissions. The temperature is different. Whether or not the ice freezes or not is different. But also in the ice itself are um, dust and smoke particles, bits of carbon, black carbon created from fires made in Asia that have blown over. And, and also, you know, all sorts of chemicals that have been emitted generally into the atmosphere have become embedded. There's, they're sort of, they're fossils starting to happen. You know, when in, in the future, when they do a, a core sample of these, these glaciers, they will find a really, really obvious mark of human presence because of our changes. And you, and you can see it everywhere. A lot of what we produce is virtually indestructible, which is um, very unusual for animals. <laughs> Most animals produce organic, you know, they eat organic stuff, they produce organic stuff, and the result is just immediately recycled in the general life systems. We now produce this kind of one-way linear system with what we make and even what we eat. You know, genetically modified organisms that we eat, their DNA is a changed, a new, a novel thing created by us. I mean, even if they're not genetically modified, even if they're modified through breeding, there's all sorts of things, you know, cows or sheep, you know, that they're, they're, the cow is a human-made creature from the naturally occurring auroch. You know, there, there are all sorts of things that wouldn't exist apart from us. And we're leaving them everywhere. Chicken bones everywhere. <laughs> What else? Well, we've rerouted, completely dramatically changed rivers. We've moved, um, we've made new connections between continents through moving animals from one zone to another. We've divided continents. If you look at the Panama Canal, has divided North and South America. We've caused dramatic changes in sediment flow, biodiversity changes. There's a eucalypt growing just outside my window now. That's a that's a species that's 
doesn't naturally occur here. In fact, most of my garden seems to be things that don't naturally grow here without human um, interference. Um, and that includes my cat, <laughs> which is domesticated, although she might disagree. So we've had we've had these really very profound changes to to life itself, to biology. We've created species that don't occur naturally, domesticated species, and we've moved them around to different um, places. But we've also changed the physics and the chemistry of our planet. The oceans are more uh, acidified now because of the carbon dioxide that has been dissolved. They've also got much higher um, nitrogen components, and that's the same with the soils because of the artificial fertilizers. We've got there's a lot of nitrogen in in the atmosphere, but in a form that plants and life need it to make our proteins, it's actually very difficult to get hold of. And so most of life on Earth has been restricted by how much nitrogen is available. Ways of getting it have included things like a chance lightning um, strike during thunderstorm, which which can get the nitrogen out of that gas, and and actually that electricity can can uh, break that tough bond and make it available to plants to take up. And there are there are various um, microorganisms that can also do this. But but generally, it's been very restricted and something that's really, really difficult to achieve. And and um, the reason why we've had mass starvation um, and famines through um, human history. But then when chemists learned to make this reaction in the 20th century, that completely transformed how many people there could be on Earth, uh, which meant a lot more human activity, which then drove the Anthropocene. But it also meant that a lot more nitrogen became available um, as um, nitrates and nitrites in the soil, which then get washed into the oceans, which cause algal blooms and, and have this um, sort of prolonged chemical effect, which then has a biological effect. So so human activity um, is so now it's so interwoven with um, Earth systems that we have these feedback loops, this complexity, this this um, synergic effect on life on Earth, but also the chemistry and physics. And, and you can't unwrap the two anymore. And that really is what the Anthropocene means. One of the big concerns that people have studying the Anthropocene is the increase in extinctions. And this actually has raised concerns that we may be entering the next mass extinction. You may have seen people talking about that we're entering the sixth mass extinction, but the really weird thing is now we might have to call it the seventh mass extinction because the geologists have found a new extinction back in the Triassic period, which, interesting for human life, was really important because it actually wiped out the proto-mammals and then allowed the dinosaurs to then actually evolve and take over the planet. So... Terminology changing, whether we're entering the sixth or the seventh mass extinction, really doesn't matter. But everybody knows how much effect we're having on the ecology and the species on this planet. So the age of the human, then, is characterised by everything from the mass extinctions that our rapacious lifeways have caused to the ubiquitous pollutants that are now strewn throughout every part of the planet. But there's one key part of our impact that even has its own letter in the A to Z global warming. As Andrew and Gaia will now tell us, this is perhaps the most significant of all our effects. Global warming, it's the most profound signal of what we're doing. The surge of CO2 entering the atmosphere, carbon dioxide being a long-lived gas. Once you liberate it from a chunk of coal or, or a barrel of oil, you're taking something that was locked in the ground for millions of years and putting it in circulation. And it's a heat-trapping gas. It's as cumulative as credit card debt if you don't stop spending. It's a phenomenally enduring signature of human influence on the planet. We set in motion 100,000 years of climate change already, and even if we sort of roll things back. So that, it's huge, but it still is, to me, a subset of the, um, the Anthropocene question. What we're doing to the biosphere, aside from the climate impacts on species, is unbelievably momentous. We're changing the temperature of the atmosphere through our carbon dioxide emissions and through uh, land use changes, different ch uh, changes in reflectivity of, of the land surface. And at the moment, we're, I think it's 1.1 degrees Celsius above um, pre-industrial normal temperatures. 
which is considerable. That's um, hotter than it's been for tens of thousands of years because of the amount of carbon dioxide we've already locked into the atmosphere. We're, we're heading into temperature changes that haven't been seen for millions of years now. And that's really quite extraordinary. While climate change may be the most significant indicator of the human impacts on planet Earth, it is certainly not the only one. There are various threats that our activities now pose and different ways of measuring our impacts, as Erica now explains. Well, I think particularly in the last decade, there's kind of mounting evidence. It's, it's almost like week on week rather than year on year that the kind of process, the impacts of climate change, species extinctions and other kind of undesirables are happening at a much faster rate than was previously thought. So we've got an ever shorter window or timescale in which to avert catastrophe, really. <laughs> so in terms of indicators, we could think about the ways in which the human impact on our planet is measured. And one way of measuring these changes comes from the Stockholm Resilience Centre. So in 2009, they suggested there are nine what they call planetary boundaries, which need to be maintained in order that we have a flourishing and a sustainable level of human life. And in 2015, a research group at the same centre in Stockholm claimed that four of these nine thresholds had already been breached. Climate change, loss of biosphere integrity, land system change and biogeochemical cycles. Sorry, that's not an easy word to say. Um, and two of these things are core boundaries, they say. And this means that our Earth system has now crossed into a new, potentially less benign state. And this condition is going to exacerbate all kinds of existing problems we have around sustainability, around poverty, around the world, both affecting both developed and uh, so-called less developed countries. So an alternative measure we might have, rather than planetary boundaries, something that people are much more familiar with, is the idea of an ecological footprint. So this measures the amount of resources used by us, the pressure we exert on the global environment, and it measures basically how fast we consume resources and generate waste compared to how fast um, those resources can be reproduced and the waste can be absorbed. Um, and this is usually expressed as a global hectare. So that refers to the area that me or you as an individual require to reproduce their particular lifestyle. And that's compared to the amount of area that is available on the planet as a whole. So if we average it out across the whole of humanity, each of us should have 1.7 global hectares to supply our needs to absorb our waste. We can also calculate the discrepancy between the way we're living and the planet's capacity to absorb our waste and to sustain us. So for the figures for 2010, for example, the average human footprint across the globe was 2.6 global hectares. So that was an overshoot of the 1.7 of approximately 50%. So you could say from that in 2010... Global humanity used the equivalent of 1.5 Earths to support its level of consumption. But of course, we don't all consume and generate waste equally. And you can break that down by region and you can break that down by country. So only five countries make up nearly 50% of the total global ecological footprint. And they're what we probably think of as the usual suspects, China, the United States, India, Brazil and Russia. But for every one of those four countries, it's less of a per capita footprint than the United States because of the size of population. So China's population is so huge that it tops the global list, whereas relatively um, the total population of the United States is much smaller. So... If everybody in 2010 uh, consumed at the rate of the average United States citizen, then we'd need 3.9 planets to sustain us. So this is why there are some scientists and social scientists who seriously think that a real problem that we as a human species confront is global population growth. 
um, and that population levels are actually going to be a major driver of ecological crisis. Um, another alarming indicator, and it was one of those boundaries established by the Stockholm um, Resilience Centre, was the rate of species extinction, which has become so rapid and prolific that it's now been labelled the sixth great extinction. And of course, there's other ways in which we consume our fellow species, which I and others find rather frightening. If we're thinking about processes of industrialised agricultural production, so the World Watch Institute estimates 56 billion animals are slaughtered each year as part of food production. Many of those are living lives on factory farms in appalling conditions. And that doesn't take into account the quantity of aquatic creatures that are caught. It's difficult to estimate the numbers, but the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization estimates the range to be between 37 and 120 billion individual creatures a year. So... Um, I would say that's carnage. I think that word carnage pretty much sums up the character of many of the relationships between humans and other creatures and, and life generally on this planet. Now we've heard a range of effects of human activity on planet Earth. But where does the Anthropocene era begin? How do we even define a geological era? Here is Mark Maslin to explain. So the amazing thing about geology is over the last 200 to 300 years, geologists have worked tirelessly to split up the whole of Earth history. So that's four and a half billion years of time that we have split up into meaningful chunks. And meaningful chunks mean where was there a change? Was there a major change in climate? Was there a major change in biology? And so therefore we can look at how Earth has evolved over time. And if you look at the geological time scale, which is beautiful, this is to geologists what the periodic table is to chemists. It is a way of defining geology and defining earth history. Now, the way they do it is they find in the rock record major layers where suddenly things shift. So if we look at, say, the KT boundary, 65 million years ago, before the boundary, there's lots of dinosaurs. We then have a major meteorite impact. You have a very thin layer of clay which marks the impact. And after that, you have no dinosaurs. So that's a really clear golden spike you can stick into the record. And actually, the layer that defines it is actually in Egypt. And you can literally go to the site and go, that's where it happened. And so that's what we're looking for. We're looking for these layers. But geology is then nested in different periods. So we have, we start off with things like uh, eras, so long periods of time. We then have periods, and usually those are on uh, five to 10 million year timescales. Epochs, such as the Playa, Pleistocene, those two are on an order of millions of years. We are in the Holocene, which is an epoch, which started 10,000 years ago. So the Anthropocene is going to be one of the smaller chunks, an epoch. The reason being is we're currently in the Quaternary period. And the Quaternary period is defined by the Great Northern Ice Ages that started two and a half million years ago. Now, at the moment, we know that climate change will have delayed the next ice age, but it hasn't stopped it. However, there are concerns if we don't deal with climate change properly and we actually go into a runaway situation, then we may have even stopped those great ice ages. But at the moment, we think the ice ages will continue in the future. Therefore, we're still in the quaternary. But underneath that, we're clearly in a different epoch, which is defined by human impacts on the planet. To get into the geological record, which is this very formal tablet that's on every elementary school geology uh, classroom. There are these formal junctures in Earth history, chapters, essentially. And for us to merit having our own chapter <laughs> has, is a heavy lift. The ones that the geologists pay attention to, 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 to merit even having any debate about a geological, a geological epoch, it has to be registered in the rock. You have to have the signature. And the prime ones 
are really more a reflection of the human influence. They're, they're at the markers that they're looking for, not necessarily the biggest thing that we've done. It's like the periodic table. You know, to get in the geologic timescale, you have to have a signature that's called synchronous and global. But there has to be something that happened. Some big thing had to happen, such that you can see its influence anywhere on the planet. Around 2009, a committee was formed to take this to that formal question of, is this now uh, officially a new geological epoch and with our name on it? And that's led to a whole long journey of its own. So the most important thing when we're looking at terminology within the Anthropocene is to separate the different ideas. So there's firstly the science-driven or geology-driven trying to define the Anthropocene epoch. So that will be a mark in the uh, time zone that says this is where we have clear evidence that humans have impacted the global environment and therefore we are going to start a new geological period of time. Okay. Within geology, different scholars have different positions on when the Anthropocene can be said to start. But if we stick with Crutzen and Sturmer, because it's, it's really their term that we're talking about, we'll say relatively brief history. So beginning with the Industrial Revolution in England at the end of the 18th century. I was invited to join the Anthropocene Working Group in 2009-2010. I was on that group for six years. And the, the signature that was chosen by the, the majority of folks in the committee is these radioisotopes that came from the nuclear testing we did, starting atmospheric testing in the 50s. Because that's everywhere. It's going to last a long time, thousands of years, tens of thousands of years. And you can point to it anywhere. If I was in charge of the Anthropocene Working Group, which is the group of geologists who are given the job of trying to define when the Anthropocene epoch started, I would go with what Simon Lewis and I actually proposed, which is 1610. So in 1610, in the ice core record, there is a drop in CO2. And this is because when Europeans made first contact with the Americas, they brought lots of organisms, plants and animals with them, but they also brought diseases, diseases that the native or indigenous populations had not encountered before. And so we know that about 90% of the population of the Americas died within 100 years of Christopher Columbus first touching uh, down on the West Indies. What happened is because they were all farmers, actually their farmland grew back into forest savanna, and that sucked CO2 out of the atmosphere. So this gave us a beautiful spike. But actually, the reason we wanted to choose that is because that's when irreversible movement of species occurred in the planet. Lots of different species. So we, we got things like tobacco, potatoes, all from South America. We then gave them sort of like horses, cattle, pigs, you know, uh, wheat, all of those things. And they moved between continents. And that continues to today, both on purpose and inadvertently, and therefore that causes a homogenization of the biosphere. In the future, a million years in the future, if an alien came down on Earth and was doing some geology, they would suddenly see that we have lots of diversity on the continents, and suddenly it all becomes very similar. And so basically humans, because of shipping and global trade, has suddenly made an artificial supercontinent. So we brought all the continents and mixed everything together. Well, for somebody like Timothy Morton with his gloomy dark ecology, he would say it's the agricultural revolution. That's the problem, really. That's, that's, what, that's where it all started. And certainly if you look at geologists arguing with, with Crutzen's kind of position, they're saying... These, these things are much earlier than the Industrial Revolution. But I'm quite persuaded by Crutzen's, it's relatively recent position. Uh, in terms of the extractive power, in terms of the interconnectivity, which has increased so rapidly since the 1600s, I think these are really very important in terms of our destructive 
the scale of our destructive potential. Human history goes back, say, between two and three hundred thousand years. We're tending to measure the Anthropocene from if, if we choose the Industrial Revolution, what that's like 150, 200 years. If we choose since the Second World War, it's decades. So it's a blink of an eye again. So the interesting thing is defining the Anthropocene and the start of it makes no definition of how long it will be. Okay, so start date, if it's 5,000 years ago, or it's 1610, or it's 1963, that's just when it starts. And actually, it could go on for millions of years until something else redefines the climate or the biology on Earth that isn't humans. So the Anthropocene starting point is up for debate. It could have lasted millennia, centuries, or even just a few decades, depending which golden spike you decide to look at. One of the interesting things about that is, depending on which one you pick, it tells us a different story about humans and their history. Here's Andrew Revkin on just that point, before Mark Maslin offers us a couple of examples of the stories we can read into different versions of the Anthropocene. What to me became clear even having played something of a role in forming the term, is that the far more interesting thing than this scientific question is the discussion, the discussion that has spiraled out around it, that what's so valuable about the Anthropocene is the discussion. The technical questions are, are great. You know, my geologist friends on that working group are, have, have continued to work on that. You know, where do we get the markers? Where, and to me, though, it's, um, you know, I love the fact that it's it's like a big rock that's been thrown into the pool of public discourse on humans' relationship to the earth and all that splashing and all those ripples are reverberating. I, I, I described in a, this essay I wrote in Anthropocene magazine, so there's a lowercase Anthropocene discussion and there's an uppercase Anthropocene discussion. Uppercase being the strict stratigraphic geologic question. They're very separable. They're both important. And the more enduring one to me is that bigger argument. What, what are we doing? How did we get here and where do we go from here? So for me, defining the Anthropocene is of interest, but actually it's not the most important thing. Defining when it starts is only useful because it gives something solid in science that says this is a date. Whether you agree with it or you disagree with it, it gives you something solid that people can then reference discuss and argue. At the moment, we don't have it official. It's basically very fluid and open to interpretations by everybody. What is amazing about the idea of the Anthropocene is it's not just science. It actually encapsulates almost all the subjects. Art engages with the Anthropocene. Social science, history, philosophy all engage with this concept of humans being the dominant species on the planet. And so for me, yes, we should define it. Just because I'm a scientist, the Anthropocene epoch, I want to know what date that is. Then we can go on to the wider concept of the Anthropocene and we can discuss it in a much wider transdisciplinary way. And the reason why this is important is twofold. One, because it changes the story about ourselves. So for example, if we declare the Anthropocene started 5,000 years ago with early farmers who started to deforest, started to actually plant uh, rice and therefore produce methane and CO2 into the atmosphere, then that changes our story about humanity. It's, it's about farming. If we go perhaps to, say, 1610, where we have the a death of something like 56 million people in the Americas because of the first contact with Europeans and those diseases. And what we have there is the reforestation because of all those uh, uh, farmers then passed away. That then drew out CO2. That changes our story because that then says, actually, it's about colonialism, it's about European expansionism, and it's about mercantile capitalism. Or the other alternative is if we jump to past the Second World War to the Great Expansion, we talk about perhaps the bomb spike from the radiocarbon generated by nuclear weapons testing. 
Now that says it's the 1960s, it's when consumer capitalism took off, and that's when the world changed. And that's then about the American expansion and the American empire. So choosing a date changes how we talk about humanity and our impacts on the planet. And of course, the way we talk about humanity and our impacts can't help but have some important consequences, a fact that left some geologists quite perturbed, as Andrew Revkin explains. Immediately, uh, the debate, even within geology, became framed by some around the politics. You know, there were scientists who said, like Paul Crutzen, who expressly were arguing that this was a, a name that can be used to drive public understanding. And then there are others, more strictly stratigraphy, types of geologists who said, no, this is going to endanger our, our discipline because you're politicizing stratigraphy. <laughs> it's so it's almost impossible to untangle a stratigraphic and geological argument from a political argument. Now, some people would say, and rightly in my view, that because the current stakes are so high, having a politicized geology is not problematic. And for me, kind of politicizing geology doesn't matter. Politics shapes what is known, how it becomes known, and politicising science doesn't necessarily mean that this is bad science that we're talking about. Now, before we start to get into some of the stories that this politicised stratigraphy might tell, I think it's worth asking, are there any problems with the notion of the Anthropocene? Mark Maslin sets up the first criticism with a little historical context that suggests it emerges during a period in which human narcissism had taken a bit of a knock. So the Anthropocene is a major concept for humanity. And if we go back a bit, for the last 500 years, scientists have inadvertently made us all feel deeply insignificant. So 500 years ago, we had the Copernicus Revolution, and therefore, guess what? Uh, the Earth was not the centre of the solar system, the Sun was. It gets even worse when you have cosmologists now telling us that our star is rather pathetic, it's rather small, and it's one of 10 to the 28 stars in the universe. That starts to make us feel really insignificant in the universe. You then have the biologists coming along. Not to be outdone, Darwin turns around and says, oh, you know that idea, plants, animals, man, and unfortunately it was man in the Victorian time, angels, God, yeah, no, that's not right. We're, we're just a smart ape uh, with no tail and less hair, okay? So that makes us feel really, really small. But then suddenly the Anthropocene comes along and this concept says, well, hang on. We are actually, as a species, the most important thing on planet Earth. We control the environment of the planet. We control the environmental destiny of most of the organisms on Earth. And this is occurring on the only place in the universe where we know that life exists. So suddenly, we are not insignificant. As a species, we are the most important thing on this planet and control the environment and evolutionary destiny of everything on it. We go from zero to hero. That's why the Anthropocene is an incredibly important philosophical concept which allows people to realise that we have a massive impact on the planet, but we can actually change that impact depending on what we as a species decide. So quite a few people have criticised the term because they think it's human-centred. Because yet again, anthropos, the human, is the centre of attention. Is it that we are anthropogenically destructive because we are kind of supernatural in our nature? We're so different to other kinds of creatures. So to steal the words from Oppenheimer, we're kind of become death, the destroyer of worlds. And it's not only human-centred, the Anthropocene, because it gives this kind of preeminence to humans as environmental changes, but it also sees humans as potential environmental saviours. That's what Crutzen was really hoping, I think, by using the term and promoting it in the way he did. So there's this kind of idea that we will be relied on for transcending these problems, perhaps through technology, through geoengineering. Uh, so in some senses, the Anthropocene, it not only involves the human in the terminology, but it kind of is also a discourse which confirms 
humanity's preeminence in the world and our human agency in the world, really. So in some ways, this is a concept that's set out to kind of undermine human exceptionalism or human exemptionalism, but actually kind of confirms it, really. Unfortunately, in a lot of the research and publications I encounter in the social sciences, there's a kind of uncritical endorsement of our contemporary condition as being about the Anthropocene. We've collectively, the human, altered the biophysical conditions of life for us and everybody else. It suggests that humanity is a kind of singular force. And many people have pointed out that we might characterise our current condition as one produced by particular lifeways of particular groups of people geographically defined on the planet, a particular kind of subset of humanity, perhaps, relatively wealthy, white, Western, male. And I think it's to try and capture that difference that all the other alternative terms have been uh, proposed in relation to the Anthropocene. Certainly one of my big learning moments as a journalist and a public figure, sort of a speaker on these issues like sustainability came when I started to realize how much I was using the word we. You look at a story in the BBC or New York Times, quite often you'll see science says, science knows, we know, we, are, we need to, we need to decarbonize. And all my writing about the imbalance in the world, the average person in India has a two tons per person per year contribution to the carbon loading of the atmosphere, CO2. And the United States has, has come down to 17 it used to be 21 tons per person per year. And India, too, is, is really bad. That means they're living energy-deprived lives. There's still 300 million people in India who can't turn on the light bulb. And so I, I began to say there is no we. So yes, for sure, uh, there, there is a weakness to the Anthropocene concept in the sense that it's not H. sapiens that's done it. It's, it's a subset. It's the industrialized part of us. I'd now like to introduce you to Jason W. Moore, professor of sociology, environmental historian, and author of Capitalism in the Web of Life. Precisely, the Anthropocene posits an agent that does not exist, and it's called humanity. It's a collective enterprise, or the human enterprise. A more deliciously neoliberal term, the human enterprise, I have not been able to find. And it's very dangerous, not just because it's false, not just because it conceals the responsibility of the world's 1%, but because it also erases and conceals the prodigious racialized and gendered class and colonial violence that has marked the modern era. And so it, it conceals the expulsion of most human beings from the Anthropos. There is no place for, say, the billion-plus human beings in the third world's megacities that are what Mike Davis calls surplus humanity. Human beings for whom capital has no use and will never have use. And that is an absolutely catastrophic recognition once we understand that in terms of capitalism, but also once we understand that all of this language, which is an exercise of power, it is an ideological struggle, make no mistake. All of this language of invoking the human and humanity around these questions separate from nature is dangerous and reproduces this extraordinarily unequal world, this climate class divide in which eight billionaires have more wealth than the bottom 3.6 billion. We've now seen the recent Oxfam report on the responsibility of the world's 1% versus everyone else. We need to take that to heart in the most radical way possible. A small proportion of very rich people are causing the problems for a large proportion of very poor people. It's unequally distributed economically, socially, racially. You know, most of the people affected are brown. Most of the people that caused it are white. There's this huge inequality to all of this. You could say climate change is racist. That would that makes a lot of sense. And and one thing that isn't often appreciated as well is it's the inequality over generations. We're we're now producing the carbon dioxide and using the more livable temperatures and weathers of our children and our grandchildren. There's this intergenerational inequality as well. It's it's incredibly difficult to resolve. We have no right to say to 
um, poor people who are developing, no, you can't have the electricity and the benefits that we have. You can't eat the amount of meat that Americans are eating in the Midwest. And yet, actually, no, they can't. We can't carry on like this. It's impossible for all of us. And yet people in the American Midwest are eating, you know, meat ridiculous numbers of times a day. And, um, you know, they have how many different cars and, and all sorts of um, things that would be impossible. And yet the people suffering the most, of course, are living sometimes hand to mouth um, with nothing, really nothing. Their personal possessions would fit easily inside a suitcase. So it's an issue of consumption. It's a social issue and it's hugely unequal. And that's one of the core reasons why solving this problem is not easy. You know, people who say it's very easy, there are simple solutions, we should just do it, are fooling themselves. It's not easy at all. And it's not easy for a lot of political, social reasons, as well as the technological reasons. But on the other hand, we don't have a choice. <laughs> you know, people who say it's too expensive to um, solve climate change or in the middle of a global pandemic, we need to concentrate on this. It's too expensive not to. That's the problem. And that goes for not just climate change, but also biodiversity loss. We're, we're actually in this enormous crisis at the moment in terms of biodiversity. I think people have generally gone for these very simplistic solutions, not, not recognising the complexity of our human, environmental, interwoven, social, economic, political system, which which you absolutely have to. And so whenever people come up with these simplistic solutions, <laughs> be on guard. <laughs> the question is, does the Anthropocene help or does it hinder? And that's that's difficult to know for sure. But to the extent that uh, it reinforces a man versus nature anthropogenic theory of climate change, it is exceedingly dangerous, it is exceedingly limited, it is exceedingly committed to erasing political and democratic solutions in favor of technological and technocratic rule. And so when we say that the climate crisis is anthropogenic, if we are talking in a very specific geological or system sense of that term, it's entirely appropriate. It's entirely useful. But that's not how it's commonly used in the Anthropocene discussions. Metaphorically or actually, we open the newspaper and we see human caused, humanity has caused this. No, that is absolutely wrong. The climate crisis is not anthropogenic made by humans. The climate crisis is capitalogenic made by capital. And on that bombshell, that's it for episode one of the A to Z of the Future podcast. But fear not, we'll be back soon and we'll explore the point that Jason W. Moore has just made in much more depth. I'd like to thank my guests, Erica Cudworth, Andrew Revkin, Gaia Vince, Mark Maslin and Jason W. Moore. Thanks also to Matt Black and Darren Sengita for the music in the podcast. Check out their digital album, New Directions and Psychedelic Abstraction. Finally, much gratitude goes to the brilliant Rob Sell and Paddy Jervis from Torch and Compass for their tireless work on the podcast, Matt Tams for the exquisite A to Z artwork, and Paul McCrudden, the other half of Into the Future. See you next time.